We've got Anson Dorrance, two washups, one pro. Anson, my favorite part of this show is to introduce guests. You, my friend, are the all-time goat. Um, let me throw some stats at you. I, I know you don't care about stats, but you are the winner of 22 of 38 national championships, winner of 21 of 31 ACC tournament champions championships, a 90.2 winning percentage, the first U.S. Women's National Team coach where you led the U.S. Women's National Team to the top of the world in 1991, one of the most, actually the most interesting man on earth. You beat out the Dos Equis guy, one of the most influential <laughs> men in my life. Welcome to the pod, Anson. Melissa, okay. you're hearing all this? Tell As Melissa I said hello. Yeah, I should have had Melissa listen to all that. I think she's forgotten. <laughs> yeah, great. I am ready. Thank you go. for that wonderful introduction, Joe. I really appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Anytime to hype you up. It's my job. It's my job to hype you up, Anson. And by so, the way, I really appreciate yeah. you guys bringing your team up because we had such a tough time scheduling teams. Um, and the fact that you guys were game. And by the way, if we had traded goalkeepers, I think you guys would have won. That's how good your team is. I mean, holy crap. You guys, you guys were great. Yeah, By the way, I can't hear you anymore if something's happened to. Yeah, Joe. Hit your mute thing by accident. You've never had Joe with a, with a technical difficulty. Oh, wow. I'm, no, I can hear you. You're now. back. Am I back, girl? Yeah, Oof. you must. Anson, normally it's you having the technical difficulties, man. That's true. That, that's true. We, uh, you know, 70-year-olds, uh, we're not really good with all this stuff. Yes. That's why well, I hired... You were prompt. Her. I can note he was prompt. Yeah. He's a yeah, prompt. No, the dot. That's why I, I hired Corey Emmerich. He's my uh, my tech support. And exactly. He does, does a great job for me. Exactly. Of the of the millennial age. Gotta love Correct. that. He's, he's agile and he gets it. And I love awesome. that. So we love to start off with kind of the first question of when did you fall in love with the game of soccer? Actually, uh, what I fell in love with was sports in general. So growing up, uh, <clears throat> I just loved uh, every sport I ever played. So it didn't matter what I was playing, I just loved it. And what was really neat about my upbringing is I was born and raised overseas. And so we moved basically every three years. And uh, what was really fun for me and my brothers is when we moved, we jumped into the, the new sports environment in the new place where we lived. And honestly, uh, growing up, I had no issue with the fact that we moved every three years. My sisters had more trouble with it because, of course, um, they were involved in these, I guess, closer relationships than, you know, the superficial and vacuous uh, boys in the family. Uh, but all we wanted to do is to jump into whatever the local sports scene was. And so my love is just sports in general. And um, <clears throat> I love, you know, all sports. When I got to UNC, uh, what I absolutely loved that first year, because back in the old days, because I transferred in, you had to sit a year. And so what did I do? Uh, I immediately jumped into the intramural sports scene. And uh, <clears throat> I tell this story all the time, but it's one of my favorites, the uh, the intramural director in Teague dorm is a guy by the name of Danny Newcomb. And Danny comes into my room. I've just transferred in there. I've just escaped, you know, being killed in San Antonio 
Um, and I just, you know, had to leave the state of Texas just to stay alive. So I transfer after one semester into UNC and Danny is now in my room and he says, Anson, uh, I hear you really love sports. Well, you know, we love uh, intramural sports here at Teague Dorm. And I was wondering if there were a sport here that you could represent the dorm in the winter and the spring. And I said, well, show me your list of sports. So he hands me this clipboard and I started looking down all the sports he's got and I hand the clipboard back to him. I said, if you want to win, put me on every single team. He thought I was joking. He thought I'd pick like two or three winter sports and maybe a, a, you know, a team or two in the spring. I said, no, I'm being totally serious. If you want to win every sport, put me on every single team. And of course he did think I was joking, but then he rolled me out there and he discovered that he had this kid that loved to compete. By the way, Melissa's feeding me right now. Oh, so even though she didn't hear you, even How though are she you? didn't, Melissa's doing it well. She says as she goes back down the stairs. I'm in the loft right now. So um, um, what was cool is Danny then understood what I meant because we started an 11-year intramural sports dynasty at UNC. And whenever I tell the story, people always ask me afterwards, you mean it took you 11 years to graduate from UNC? No, 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 no. <laughs> I was a part of the initiation of that dynasty and we extended it forever because we started doing things like we would recruit kids from high schools in North Carolina. The athletes on our different sports teams would say, oh, by the way, Anson, there's this great com kid coming in from, you know, Fuquay Verena High School or something. He's a really good athlete. I said, okay, so let's talk to him. So we would recruit him and we'd have him put down Teague Dorm as his dorm of choice. And so we were recruiting these athletes from all over the state of North Carolina. We enjoyed beating everyone to death. My favorite dorm to beat was what was called back in my day, Erringhouse A. Why was that my favorite target? Because that's where all the football players lived. Uh, and I enjoyed um, nothing more than beating the football players to death in whatever sport they selected to play. Um, and uh, if we had been basically able to play the basketball team, that would have been even more fun. But back in those days, all the basketball players lived off campus in Granville Tower. So they are not a part of the sort of intramural climate on campus but holy cow did i get up for the football team yeah. uh, i think so i love that because you were actually some of my fondest memories were in the spring when you let us play intramural basketball and you literally in your you would come home you would come to the court and i know you were nervous but you would still come and support and those were some of the most fun times as we just got to enjoy playing sports and you always uh, let us do that. It was Yeah, no, I was I am a huge fan of intramural yeah. basketball when you guys yeah. play. Yeah. Do you guys want to know why my pinky looks like that? Intramural well, basketball. That, well, there yeah. you go. So yeah, so <laughs> the whole thing is uh, uh Joe to answer your question, uh, I just fell in love with sports. And then when I got to uh, uh St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas, <clears throat> the only uh, well, there were two sports I was playing at a varsity level there. One was obviously soccer. And back in those days, uh, and even to this day, actually, Texas has very few men's varsities. They've got a lot of women's varsities, but very few men's varsities. So the team I played on at St. Mary's was a club team. Um, but we were the best uh, soccer team in Texas, uh, university team. And why? Because St. Mary's University, and the reason I went to school there, is the teaching order that ran my boys' boarding school in Freiburg, Switzerland, were Marianists, basically brothers and sisters of Mary. 
And so what was our university in the United States? It was St. Mary's University. So a lot of the people that ended up coming to St. Mary's University were uh, missionaries and uh, the kids of missionaries that, of course, were you know, living all over the world. And at the missionary schools in places like Brazil and Peru and Chile and Venezuela and Bolivia and Argentina and Uruguay, where the top students would come to St. Mary's. And so what did all these guys know how to, what to do? They were all incredible soccer players. So my freshman year of college at St. Mary's University in San Antonio, Texas, I was one of only two Americans that started on the team. And so we were a great team. We went around Texas beating everyone to death, uh, beating all the universities. Why? Because most of our roster were South Americans that, that could really play. And my only quality in soccer, you know, growing up was I was fierce and I was mean as a snake and I loved heading and tackling and I love running around just beating people to death. I and just I loved, love how he I says loved, that. Beating yeah, I love that, you know, death. Yep. just a born competitor, expect nothing less. Right. But the other thing I really enjoyed was debating referees because uh, <laughs> I've always enjoyed arguing with them. And and in goes on that train now. We're talking yeah. to her about I've always know, been coaching. On. She's on yeah, that big well, train. No, exactly. But anyway, um, but yeah. soccer, uh, when I transferred to UNC, I was uh, at St. Mary's. I was actually training with a tennis coach. So I probably would have made the ten tennis varsity at St. Mary's. Um, <clears throat> I wasn't a really good college level tennis player. I certainly never would have had a sniff at the UNC tennis roster. But this tennis coach uh, watched me play pickup tennis. And of course, in the you know recreational tennis courts across the St. Mary's campus, I was beating everyone to death. Uh, so he recruited me and um, I would have certainly become a solid college tennis player, but not an, an elite one. Cause I couldn't really bring to bear what separated me, which was- Stepping on uh, people's throats. Yeah, was violence, you know, 50, 50 <laughs> balls, you know, pain threshold. Cause the only thing I really wanted to do in tennis was to play doubles and hit the person at the net in the throat with a tennis ball. <laughs> But obviously that's not, you know, a major driving force for, you know, <laughs> tennis success because, you know, half the time I'd hit it out of bounds aiming at their throat. But anyway, I, I loved all best, sports. So that's I the transfer... best we've ever gotten. What's that? Well, I haven't finished yet. I'm getting to soccer. Oh, I'm okay, okay. slowly getting to soccer. So anyway, I transferred in and then believe it or not, Bill Palladino and I as transfers, because he transferred from ECU. We had to sit out. So what did we do most of the practice? We were shagging balls for a guy named Mac McKinnon. Mac McKinnon hit the ball so hard, Dino and I would have to relay it with two or three passes to get it back to him from behind the goal. So, you know, I would sit there and chase his ball. Then I would knock it up to Dino and then he'd try to knock it back to Mac. Because, uh, you know, we, we were basically ball shaggers for most of that, you know, season when we were being redshirted. But all of a sudden, I was eligible the next year, <clears throat> jumped onto the soccer team, and I loved it. Uh, my freshman year of college, I was a right back because in all the skill positions, you know, the positions you played, Joe, they had the South Americans, so they certainly didn't <laughs> need me to be the 10 or the 9 or the 7 or the 11. So I was back there trying to beat to death the other team's left wing as the right back. Uh, so, you know, I got to UNC, and now at UNC, holy cow. I was one of the better players. So I was promoted from as if you could promote a right back to a different position. But let's face it, back in those days, you know, the blunt instruments were in the back. And the further forward you were, 
is the more technical you were and the more tactical you were. So after playing at St. Mary's as the right back, the lowest of the low, I probably would have been the first player cut. Uh, you know, I was probably the worst of the 11 on the field. Then when I got to UNC, all of a sudden I was at a higher level, at least relative to my teammates. So where did I play? I played inside forward in the old one, three, three, four days. Wow. So you would play a diagonal defense in the back, okay. which meant there were no flat defenses back in those days. You had a radical diagonal. So if the ball was coming up your left side, the left midfielder was pressuring the ball. The center back was on a radical diagonal away from the left uh, back. And the right back was in effect the sweeper because his radical diagonal was so deep. If the ball was knocked through the left back, the right back would run over and cover. Wow. So, but I didn't have to do that work anymore. I was approaching yeah. superstardom. So now <laughs> I was a inside forward. So I was up front, the glory positions, running around like crazy without any real responsibility. I mean, gosh, the players further forward, they just had it so cool and cozy. Because of course, any game we lost, it wasn't my fault. It was one of those ridiculous backs back there with the goalkeeper. Exactly. I was running around, you know, posing for cameras, <laughs> being interviewed, following Scoring the game. goals. Yeah, I loved it. Scoring goals, creating goals. And so I basically yeah. I loved the glory positions. But my sophomore year, they finally realized that, you know, maybe uh, we should try to win a couple of games. They pushed me uh, back a little. So then I became a center halfback in the one, three, three, four. So now my responsibility is, Joe, we're basically like the classical stopper or defensive okay. midfielder. Okay. Gotcha. So now my job was to basically do what I was good at. I was good at heading. I was good at tackling. I was good at running. I was good at passing. And so now I was basically playing a position I could actually play. And that's when I did start to have some glory. So I was basically that position for my final two years. And I loved it. And by then I did fall in love with the game. Um, but to be honest, um, I didn't lose my love for sport. Uh, because while I was there at UNC, I played rugby every spring, uh, played soccer every fall, but rugby every spring. And I love rugby because I get to smash into people. Um, I get to, you know, I just love that. That's like a, I love that you love to just be like a brute force. I, and not knowing you, I would never assume that. But that's oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, of course, because I'm not, you know, that big and I'm relatively skinny. I don't have any musculature. Well, <laughs> also, I would think as a coach, I, when we played you, I never had this feeling that you were like so at the refs or super emotional i feel like you're always kind of watching the game and interacting no no no, no. So. i wasn't super emotional uh when no. i debated a referee it was cerebral yeah it was let me explain to you sir why you're a frigging idiot uh <laughs> and this is why because you clearly didn't see that and you know Clear. so i wasn't emotional about it i was just where I was the emotional one. I am the emotional one. Yeah, Joe is more emotional. No, I was cerebral. So my my debates with the referees were, you know, just very calm and collected. Uh, so no, I, I'm, I am not emotional. I'm just violent. Uh, so my, a, is it my favorite story with the yelling at the ref? I got, I think my freshman year, I got a, I got a yellow for yelling at the ref. Uh -huh. He pulled me off immediately. And then at halftime, he went in <laughs> and said, if you want to yell at the ref you just say hey meet me after the game we'll, we'll handle it outside of the game <laughs> but not on the field don't talk back on the field it's i mean i love that it's yeah joe i didn't want to lose you so you I know, know yeah i didn't want to lose you you were too valuable you can't be the hothead can't be i the respected you yeah thank you so so amazing story and quite a journey but 
nothing that I wouldn't expect. For those of us that, you know, don't know you as well as Joe, who is Anson outside of the UNC legendary coach? What are things that you enjoy um, to do, like besides just be a great coach, mentor women, push the game forward? What are things that like you do with your wife or enjoy at Actually, home? Actually, uh, I'm not that interesting. Uh, all I wanna do is play sports, read books um, and coach my team. team. So that's about Sounds it. Like a nice life. Any yeah, books not, you recommend? Uh, What's some not, books? <laughs> book recommendations. Oh, oh. Do you yeah, okay. need a whole another podcast for that one? Okay, just give us your best one right now. Just one. One well, everyone should read. The book that everyone should read is Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. It's an extraordinary book. A book about purpose. <clears throat> it's an extraordinary book about basically the last of the human freedoms, which is to choose your attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose your own way. And honestly, it's the sort of thing right now that I think uh, the United States could use, because right now we're in these tribal camps. We're at each other's throats. We can't seem to embrace even facts anymore. Uh, one group of, you know, the tribe has one set of facts. Another group has another. And uh, we don't seem to have any respect for each other. And it's just incredibly destructive in a very negative way. And the thing I love about Viktor Frankl is here's a Holocaust survivor. Everything he's loved has been killed. His mother and father were killed in the camps. His, all of his brothers and sisters, with the exception of one sister, is killed in the concentration camps. And yet in that environment, he still is telling us that he has the capacity to have a good attitude. And so the reason that book is so critical for us to read is because the gilded lives that we lead, holy cow, how could any of us uh, have the opportunity or right to be, uh, I guess, uh, critical of anything. We know where we're gonna sleep, we're gonna be comfortable, we know what we're gonna eat, we're gonna be fed, we're gonna be clothed, we're gonna be basically housed and protected and taken care of. And yet, even in that environment, uh, so many of us uh, are off the edge of a cliff with emotion over you know, one crisis or another that we've created by ourselves. Uh, we live in such a gilded environment <clears throat> Uh, we should just celebrate that uh, our forebearers, you know, created a world for us that's just absolutely extraordinary. And yet, for some reason, uh, we don't do that. Uh, we just jump on our social media platforms and criticize everything uh, that we can. Uh, we take umbrage at everything. Uh, you and I and Joe live on the edge of white grievance. Uh, when anything in our world uh, is upsetting or whenever we're responsible for anything. Uh, and it's just, it's just so pathetic. So Viktor Frankl's book, I think, would give all of us a perspective that I think we need. Yeah. Because we're, we're all incredibly spoiled. And uh, honestly, uh, I think that would be a great book for all of us to read and review. Yeah, I think... I know we, we have to read it every, uh, every class has to read it. And I'm sure that train's still going with, with the current team. But I think if you ask any Carolina alum, that is something that they will point to in their Carolina experience is reading that book and the impact that it has on so many women's soccer Carolina alum. It's, it's truly incredible. And definitely for whoever who's listening, like that book really can change your perspective in a snap of a finger. Um, so definitely thank you for one, sharing that and two, making us young 17 year olds read it as well. It's a, it's a massive eye-opening experience. That's for sure. It is. Um, the only thing I like about the book is it's short. It's simple. Yep. It's not yep. complex. The Easy ideas read. aren't, yeah, they aren't so deep that you're lost in them. 
Yeah. Uh, but the uh, the value of those ideas, I think, just outweigh the weight of the book. So uh, yeah. I, I love it. I love recommending exactly. it. So kind of getting into how you became the UNC women's soccer coach. Not many people know, I think, that you were supposed to be this big time hot shot lawyer, but you <laughs> end up you end up coaching both the men's UNC women's soccer team or UNC soccer team and the women's UNC soccer team. At a time when women's soccer lacked absolutely zero recognition, mm -hmm. what made you pursue the women's program when you were offered, you know, to both coach both? Yeah, well, uh, thank you, Joe. <clears throat> You're right. Um, I had no ambition to coach. Um, <clears throat> my dad wanted to be, the, be his corporate attorney. He was starting his own oil company. In fact, it was going to have a, uh, <clears throat> a 30,000 barrel per day refinery in Moorhead City. And I remember back in the day, my dad would zip back and forth uh, from uh, where we were living in Lewisburg, North Carolina, uh, which is between uh, Raleigh and the Virginia border and Moorhead City, because he was fighting the environmentalists. He was fighting the, in the snail darters. And of course, they were telling him that if he brought his refinery in there, all the snail darters would die. And uh, of course, my dad could care less because one of his bumper stickers on his car was, you know, nuke the whales. So, you know, he didn't care about the frigging snail darters. Um, he was going to establish his, you know, his own oil company, uh, oil company. And he wanted me to be his corporate uh, attorney because the family joke back there then was at least Anson wouldn't have a tendency to steal from his own estate. So they were, that was, you know, Doran's family humor. And I loved my father. I was a, I was a dutiful son. And yep, so I was going to go to law school for my father because I loved him. And so uh, <clears throat> was I a great student that had, you know, pick of the law schools from across the country to attend? No, I was a miserable student. Why? Because I was spending every single day plotting the revenge of the badminton defeat from the previous spring. So we were training our badminton skills because holy cow, I can't believe that Erringhouse A beat us in badminton. Are you kidding me? So listen, all you jackasses, we're going to practice this, you know, ridiculous sport and we're going to master it and destroy people in badminton. So what was I doing all day? I was playing sports all day and I was figuring out ways to win in all these different sports. And so anyway, to make a long story short, I wasn't much of a student. <clears throat> so, uh, but I love my father. And so I was going to go to law school for him. So <clears throat> at first, when I uh, graduated from UNC, I got married immediately, by the way, one of the greatest decisions I ever made, because I, uh, I married a woman that could support me. <clears throat> so all of a sudden, I marry Melissa. She's this wonderful, professional dancer. She and I moved to Chapel Hill the summer we graduate, <clears throat> summer I graduate. She's hired immediately at a local dance studio. <clears throat> and so now I'm not going to starve to death. I'm trying to contribute to the family income. So I jump into the life insurance business. Um, <clears throat> and honestly, uh, that's a terrifying business uh, because you're basically being rejected every single second of every day. All of your friends try to avoid you because now that you have to talk to them about, you know, buying a life insurance policy or you'll starve to death. So anyway, uh, but in terms of teaching me about how to recruit and so many things that I use to this day and so many things I have learned about the real world from the rejection of the life insurance industry, I couldn't have picked a better sort of purgatory to be burned in <clears throat> in order to come out the other side and understand the perils of recruiting. Because recruiting is so similar to <clears throat> selling life insurance. <laughs> You're not going to sell every policy you try to sell. And you develop this incredible hardness 
that has made me uh, a very good recruiter. So even though, you know, for seven or eight seconds after, you know, some, you know, 14, 15, 16, 17 year old has blown me off because they're off to Stanford or in the case more recently, of course, the University of Virginia, because, yep. you know, Swanee is coming off two world championships. So when he talks to a youth national team player, of course, they're going to Virginia. So anyway, so it hardens you a bit. Um, but, you know, I wasn't that good of a student. So Melissa's supporting me and, and, but I'm applying to law schools and all of a sudden North Carolina Central admits me. Um, it's not a top tier law school, but by George, they saw something in me and they have admitted me now. So I'm off to North Carolina Central. So I'm over there, you know, coaching the team, but also going to law school. And so I'm the coaching the men's team at UNC. The only reason I got that job wasn't because I you know, was really interested in it and applied for it. And that was my goal and ambition. No, the coach I played for loved me. And he went in there and he basically suggested to the athletic director, a wonderful man by the name of Bill Kobe, to consider hiring me to replace him. Now, keep in mind, back in the day, we didn't have a full-time soccer coach back when I was playing. No, he was a physical education instructor at UNC and he coached the men's soccer team part-time so when he went in there to speak to uh, bill kobe i guess bill was thinking well you know what <clears throat> maybe we can get anson uh very inexpensively so we don't have to do a national search and bring in some hot shot that'll obviously break our budget maybe he looked at all these different factors because to, to this day i can't understand how i was hired although i have a great story about that by the way if you want to ask me about that later but anyway so <clears throat> i go in there bill kobe calls me into his office and i'm thinking he's bringing me in to ask my opinion on who he should hire to replace my mentor dr marvin allen a wonderful gentleman uh, that i also loved <clears throat> and i go in there and my jaw drops because he offers me the men's coaching job i'm thinking are you kidding me i just couldn't believe it and I couldn't believe my enormous starting salary. I think it was 2,500 my first year as the head men's coach at North Carolina. So I couldn't wait to decide, you know, which uh, hamburger joint to spend all that money in. Uh, so anyway, um, I go home and we're doing handsprings because now, you know, I'm contributing to the family uh, yes. income. Yes, so happy. Yeah, mate, Miss Melissa's overjoyed. So she went from, you know, uh, well, anyway, it doesn't matter. So anyway, so I'm in there and I'm trying to contribute. But I'm in law school. And uh, then all of a sudden, um, I'm hired in 76 to be the assistant to Marvin Allen. So I was the head coach designate. Next year, I become the head coach. 77, I'm the head men's coach after serving a year as his assistant. Now my salary jumped up to the enormous figure of, I think, $5,000. So now we are truly, you know, Breaking we can't in. wait. Yeah, we can't wait to buy a scooter <laughs> so we can have a second vehicle. Uh, and then, of course, uh, I'm still in law school, of, of course. And then all of a sudden it's 79. And Bill Kobe says, Anson, uh, the UNC Women's Soccer Club has petitioned for varsity status. I want you to come and evaluate them for me. Can you meet me? You know, I said, of course. So I'm there in the old field hockey stadium and the club is playing. And I'm standing there next to Bill Kobe. And he says, Anson, what do you think of this team? I said, well, coach, I mean, sir, they're, I mean, Mr. Kobe, they're certainly well-organized. Um, I think the coach has done a good job right now. I'm shilling for the team and the coach because I want him to, yeah, I think, you know, the more soccer in this country, the better. So I'm petitioning that he should establish this team as a varsity, obviously also encouraging him to hire the coach to become the coach of the team. And I, I'm thinking, I, you know, that's, that'll be great. I'll finish my law degree. And then obviously I'll retire from 
coaching, et cetera, et cetera. And then he says, well, Anson, uh, if you will agree to hire a coach, both teams, I will pay you full time. Oh my gosh. And so now I'm thinking this is unbelievable. So I'm saying, sure. Uh, so now I'm trying to you know, finish my law degree. And by this time, by the way, I've transferred into the University of North Carolina Law School. I've transferred in there as a fourth year law student. Most people finish law school in three years, but I was taking a course shy each semester in order to get the uh, degree and coach. So I'm six courses shy of my degree and now I'm at UNC. Obviously it's easier because I don't have to drive to North Carolina Central and Durham and drive back to the campus and then do my paperwork and then coach the team. So now this is a lot easier except two teams and law school this is killing me. So I'm getting four to six hours sleep at night and I am just, I am being driven crazy. So finally I go in and I talk to Melissa and I said, honey, uh, this is killing me. And then she fully supported me. She says, Anson, I know what you love. You love this, don't you? And I said, yeah, honey, I do. And she said, uh, why don't you just be a full-time soccer coach and, you know, let's, let's drop out of law school. And I gave her a big hug because that's obviously what I wanted to do. And even though obviously at the time I was thinking this poor woman, she thought she was going to be retired on a yacht in the Mediterranean. And now she's marrying a soccer bum. I just feel sorry for her, but she had no issue with that. She wanted me to be happy. God bless her. And I was. So now <clears throat> I am coaching the men and women's soccer teams at North Carolina. Um, and that started in 1979. And I have not looked back. And then obviously in the interim, after 79, of course, I coached men and women for uh, 10 years together. The men alone for three, men and women together for 10. And during that stretch of 10 men and women, I'm coaching the U.S. full national team as a part-time gig. And of course, we do a good job. We basically, you know, kick everyone's rear end in the world, which I absolutely loved. Because I'll tell you what's kind of funny. When you're born and raised overseas, you have this really interesting relationship with all the people in the places you've lived because the whole world has a love-hate relationship with the United States. Yep. So I spent my life defending American foreign policy, right or wrong. And so I have scars all over my cerebral cortex and body from, you know, doing war with whatever country I was in and all those debates. So I am a born debater. I love debating people, even if I didn't have a leg to stand on. I will fight you to the death in a debate. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, I've got all these scars and they give me the U.S. Women's National Team. And I am playing against basically all these countries in the world. And this is their game. And I am loving it. We are beating the world at its own game. And for me, coaching the United States Women's National Team was visceral. I went into every game with a chip on my shoulder and we were going to tear that Dominance. country apart because I have an incredible passion for the United States because I've defended it right or wrong in every country I've lived in and I have all the scars to prove it. And so for me, coaching that team was visceral. Obviously I was excited. We won the first one. Then I stepped back because uh, uh, coaching all these teams was just overwhelming. Again, uh, poor Melissa, because uh, I wasn't really at home that much to help her raise our family. And then uh, in 89, I just started doing the women. Um, and uh, obviously that's where I still am. And I have loved every day of this. And you have well, touched on the amount of human beings that you have influenced and you have made such an impact on their lives is 
you cannot yeah i mean that's the greater that's the greater message here is that he's been able to have so many relationships gained and made and influenced so we wanted to get into i mean speaking about your career at unc uh, a 90.2 percent winning percentage no shock there just basically hearing your mentality and how you've kind of were infectious to your teams UNC is a women's soccer program. I think the first thing anybody thinks of, whether you went there or not, is just consistency. Um, what do you think's gone into just sustaining such dominance and consistency even now, right? I mean, the game has only grown and gotten more competitive and you guys have never dropped off. And I think it's something that is tremendous, but also just I'm curious what it is you think has played a factor in that. Well, first of all, you're very kind. <clears throat> and let's not uh, have any delusions of grandeur. <clears throat> the only way you can be successful in collegiate sports is by recruiting great players. You can't win games without great players. And we've always had our share. I mean, Joe Boyles being one of them. I loved uh, yeah. uh, having her on the field. I mean, she was extraordinary in the air. Her first touch was exquisite. Her decisions were good. So that's the only way you win. The only way you win is to have quality players in every position in the field. <clears throat> we did a couple things that I think were different than most teams, though. One of the things we did, which I don't understand why more teams don't do it, and I don't understand why we are under such criticism for doing it, but we've always believed in playing a deep roster. Um, and, of course, I think a lot of coaches take pride in you know playing as few people as possible, as if that makes them uh, eligible for sainthood in the FIFA soccer community. <clears throat> I've never understood it. Uh, because um, I think you should play as many players as you can, as long as, you know, they're going to be killing themselves out there. So as a result, I think we've won a lot of games because uh, <clears throat> we have played a deep roster. And even though obviously every school, including Virginia, I assume, uses this against us in recruiting, um, we uh, embrace it. And a part of it is we embrace the entire community of our team. And so the way we look at it, is we look at a starter, obviously, uh, in a certain position, we consider the best player for that position. But then we have someone that she competes with for playing time. And that's her reserve. And the decision for us as to when we're going to make a substitution is when is the inferior player fresh better than the superior player fatigued? Mm -hmm. So that's where we draw our demarcation line. So as a result, what we get is we get the benefit of all kinds of things. But one of the things we get a benefit from in the game is the reserves are competing for more playing time. The starters are competing to expand their platform. And obviously the fitter you are as a starter, the more minutes you get uh, and the more effective player you're gonna be. And then you're reserving, you're sort of a narrowing down the window for the reserve player to play. <clears throat> so we have all these competitions going on. And then the two pillars that I think make the biggest difference in our program are the cauldron itself where we have a matrix on a bulletin board, a public bulletin board at practice, where in 28 different categories, the players are ranked. And the rankings, and obviously Joe is terrified when we put up a speed ranking, uh, <laughs> but also she's exhilarated. I know where to look for, and it is down. <laughs> but also <laughs> when she looks at her heading ranking, she's at the top. So based on your skill set and your qualities, you're going to be either very high or very low. But this has a twofold wonderful effect on player development. The first thing is it doesn't, um, I guess, force me every single day to give every kid a critique because what's the critique? Your performance is the critique. And what do you need to do to look at where you are? Just go to the board. That'll tell you. So I don't have to have these emotional moments with my players as I'm coaching them in practice. 
because they know where they stand and everything uh, because the bulletin board is right there next to the field. So I think that's a factor that really helps us. But the other thing that's good about the cauldron, <clears throat> not only for feedback, but also it tells the players that everything counts. So they don't get to be slack in anything. Because sometimes in some environments, when the head coach is looking at what you're doing, that's when you're going 100%. And so all the players doing something behind that coach's back aren't going 100%. But because we are recording everything in practice, you can't afford the luxury of not competing in every single second of every practice. And so what this does is when you compete, there are two positive things about it. First of all, you are improving yourself if you're competing because no one has ever developed in a recreational environment. You develop by basically competing. So you improve by competing and trying to win everything, but you will have a profound impact on your culture with forcing the people around you to deal with your competitive nature because for them to come up to you and compete with you, they're gonna have to raise their level. So all of a sudden the entire level of the training environment is elevated because of the cauldron, because everything counts. And it's really interesting, and I'll share this with you. It's one of the favorite things I share now. And uh, <clears throat> even though you would think uh, because of uh, my nature, uh, I'm a conservative. I'm not. I'm a liberal. Uh, but it doesn't mean I don't have some conservative values. I certainly do. Um, but I'm a huge fan of Rachel Maddow, who is a newscaster on MSNBC, obviously a more liberal uh, platform. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm listening to her one day. And she said something that was incredibly profound while I'm listening to her. <clears throat> she was speaking to an expert in something. And she introduced him as an expert in this, the law or something. And, and he was going to you know, talk about his expertise. And then the guy, because the introduction of this guy was so good about what an expert he was, I think the guy shot back at her. Well, Rachel, what are you an expert in? And I loved her answer. She said, I am an expert in reading comprehension. And obviously anyone that watches that show, <clears throat> this woman is absolutely brilliant. Her IQ is off the charts, but the thing I love about her, <clears throat> she explains things to me incredibly well. So she speaks English very well, but she can take a complex situation <clears throat> and explain it to me. So that statement she made, I am an expert in reading comprehension, forced me to sort of, become more self-aware of what I was an expert in. Uh, <clears throat> there are a lot of people out there that know a heck of a lot more about soccer than I do. And all you have to do to find these people is just jump on the internet. You can find these people that they're absolutely brilliant about the game and they know everything about it, technically, tactically. I mean, and it's all there for our taking. The internet is an incredible resource for any of us that want to become an expert in anything. The more I thought about it, I was thinking, well, what, what do I have to contribute? And here's what it is. I'm an expert on competition. That's my expertise. I know how to drive competition. I know how to motivate athletes to, to compete. I know how to parse the data to make them even more competitive. I know mm -hmm. how to collect it, present it to, to them. <clears throat> but I'm also very good at explaining things, maybe not to the extent that Rachel Maddow is, but within the context of my sport. Uh, I'm an articulate representative of our game and I can explain the different nuances of all these different elements that can help you get to the promised land. <clears throat> so that was important for me to understand and appreciate. So in my opinion, <clears throat> after the 
quality of the athlete that you're recruiting. The other two things that contribute to, I think, our overall success is the cauldron, uh, but also our core values. Because I genuinely believe that uh, uh, my main mission uh, as the coach at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill is human development. So as a result, my priority is their character development. Uh, because even though, yes, I want them to become great soccer players, that shouldn't be my priority. My priority for them, if I'm serving them, is to help them develop the most powerful character possible, because that's going to serve them in every arena of their lives, from their personal relationships to <clears throat> their professional relationships to their community relationships. And I think that should be uh, my priority. My second priority, believe it or not, is also not their football evolution. It's their academic success. And so the yep. top priority is character. The second priority is academics. The third priority is soccer. Now, do I take my soccer charge seriously? Yes, I do. But as Joe knows, the top award at our banquet is not MVP. It's the Kelly Muldoon Award for character. So we try to walk our talk um, and we take it very seriously. So after the quality of the athletes I've recruited, the two things that make the most difference, in my opinion, for our consistent success is the cauldron and our emphasis on character development. So do you think when um, you're recruiting, do you think you then have the ability to look at thousands of these kids at, at ECNL events at, you know, back then when it was ODP, can you look at a kid and go, she's a competitor? Is that the one trait you value most? Is it, you know, what are you looking at when you're on the sidelines with your arms crossed looking at a game, stressing the kids out who are playing it. <laughs> yes, that's the ring that rules them all. <clears throat> Your competitive fire rules them all. Because that tells me not only are you going to improve at a rapid rate, but in my environment, you're going to help me improve everyone around you. Mm -hmm. So that is an absolutely critical quality. So yes, I look for that. But you can't ignore some of these other platforms. <clears throat> you can't ignore the athletic platform. You can't ignore the decision-making platform, the tactical appreciation uh, that uh, and uh, capability some players have. You can't ignore the technical platform. So you've got to embrace all of them. <clears throat> and basically the alchemy of the great player is a combination of all these different factors. So when I meet with a player, is we talk about these things and Joe, I'm sure has some memories of them. <clears throat> we talk about self-discipline, competitive fire, self-belief, love of the ball, love of playing the game, love of watching the game, grit, coachability, and connection. And we try to have an objective self-awareness, self-evaluation number attached to those nine different qualities. So that I want a player to understand, you know, where she is in self-discipline. So we actually have a marker we say, if you give yourself a five in self-discipline, you are at a U.S. full team level or Olympic level uh, in self-discipline. If you give yourself a 4.5, you consider yourself already a professional in that category. If you give yourself a four, that's a UNC starter level. If you give yourself a five, that's a UNC come off the bench in each half level. If you give, give yourself a three in that area, you are a kid that travels with the team. If you give yourself below that, you don't travel or play, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what we're trying to do with this, and this is one of my ambitions when I'm coaching each kid, is I'm trying to get her narrative to the truth. Every person has a personal narrative that protects them from pain and accountability. So my job is to train the narrative. 
My job is to coach the narrative. My job is to try to get that kid's narrative to the truth as fast as possible. Because the faster she gets to the truth, the more she's in control of her own development. Because if your family is still a part of your personal narrative, because obviously they're going to protect you from everything. They're going to pretend you're the greatest starter that's ever played at UNC. So the sort of narrative you get from them is not just warping your personal narrative. It's making it harder for me. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to win the athlete away from all the other narratives that she is subject to that are going to make it difficult for her to ever get to the truth. Because the only time you start really growing is when you embrace the truth. Mm. Once you embrace the truth, now you're in full control. Because if you don't embrace the truth, you have a litany of excuses for why you failed. The coach hates me. That's why he doesn't play me. Uh, I can't believe the coach likes that other player. That's why he doesn't play me. The coach this, the coach that, you know, the referee this, the referee that, the weather this, the weather that, you know, the injury this, the injury that. We all are laced with excuses that protect us from pain. They protect us from accountability. But if you have 11 ass kickers, that have full responsibility for wherever they are and they understand the truth. Holy cow. Is that a championship team? Because then they're not going to put up with anything except success. And they're going to take responsibility for everything. One of my favorite recent quotes was uh, uh, Michael Brady. uh, I'm sorry, Michael Bradley. Mm. Um, He was defending Chris Armas. Chris Armas was just fired at FC Toronto. I think. I think uh, Bradley is his captain. The interview with Bradley following the firing of his coach was extraordinary. Because basically what he said is we didn't do enough. It wasn't uh, Chris Armas's fault. It was my fault. It was our fault. And that's the example of an extraordinary leader. I have an incredible respect for him anyway, because just through amazing coincidence, <clears throat> I flew next to him business class on a flight from, uh, uh, I think, D.C. to Frankfurt when he was going back to play in Germany back in the day. And uh, I couldn't believe what an incredibly humble and gracious and kind and thoughtful young man this was I was sitting next to. Of course, I knew him uh, as a player on the U.S. full national team. But I didn't know him as a, as, a, as a young man. And oh my gosh, after that flight, my respect for him went right through the roof. And so it didn't surprise me when Chris was fired that all of a sudden uh, when he was interviewed that he came to the rescue and took full responsibility. I think at the time the team was like one, eight and three or something. And he took full responsibility yeah. uh, for the eight losses. And I was thinking, holy cow, if this guy could be bottled and basically shared with every captain and every team and every sport, uh, that team would go to a completely different level because uh, I have huge admiration for this, the, the stance that he took. <clears throat> and so that's what's vital. What's vital is can I, as a coach, get this extraordinary athlete uh, to the, uh, an honest narrative as fast as possible? Because then all of a sudden, I can't improve a player. The player has to improve herself. And any coach out there that thinks that they're the arbiter of someone's development is lost. We're not. We are not arbiters of any of the success of any of the players we've had. They take control of their own success and improvement. And all we can do is sort of nibble at the edges to try to get their narrative to the truth as fast as possible.
Lucky for us all, this conversation continues in part two, which should also be on the Instagram. Go head over and listen to more of this awesome conversation with the GOAT, Anson Dorrance.